can encourage you to now take a copy of the scriptures for our scripture reading as we turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to turn. Beginning in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Have any of you ever heard of Jefferson's Bible? Any hands? Jefferson's Bible, that ringing a bell from history class? Okay, like three of us. So when Thomas Jefferson was president, uh, and in the years after his presidency, he would go to various translations of the scriptures and would cut out specific passages within the Gospels and paste them into a notebook. And he created his own Bible. I have a facsimile copy here in front of me. Elizabeth and I got to go to Washington, D.C. back in 2020, and we visited the Library of Congress, and they had a whole display on Jefferson's Bible. They actually had Jefferson's Bible out where you could see it, and I had to pick up a copy in the gift store. It was way overpriced, but it was too fascinating for me not to. So in this facsimile copy, it actually looks like the individual pages have been pasted, the individual passages on each page. What Jefferson was after in doing this was moralism. He cut out everything from the Gospels that he disagreed with or thought not possible and left everything else in there that had some good moral teaching. So this picture shows you how his copy of the Bible ends It actually ends with Jesus Christ dead in the tomb. There is no resurrection in Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Apart from being a bit of fascinating American history, this is a caution, and there's a caution for us to take in this. If we're not careful, it's very easy for us to create our own Jefferson Bibles. We may not be cutting and pasting verses out of the Bible and then discarding the rest, but practically speaking, because of 
cultural pressure or our own questions that are unanswered or maybe through embarrassment over how outdated the Bible actually sounds, we can begin intentionally or unintentionally ignoring uncomfortable passages. Well, the next two weeks, we find ourselves in a part of Colossians that if we slow down in and meditate on, may bring us a measure of discomfort. So let's just embrace the discomfort together. In chapter 3, Paul has laid out for the Colossian believers what the new resurrection life looks like, the new creation life that every believer experiences once he or she is placed into Jesus. And he paints a compelling picture of a community of believers that are constantly putting off the old ways of living and putting on the new man, Jesus Christ, who is recreating us, who is making all things new. And over this new compelling community that Jesus is building, Paul lays this grid. We just read it. Whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So whatever you say or think or do or decide, say, think, do, decide it with reference to and in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. One time when Elizabeth was flying for us to meet up. I can't remember if we were, uh, but this was before we were married or not, but she was flying by herself and we were preparing to meet up in somewhere and her plane hit an area of low pressure mid-flight. And in a matter of a split second, the plane dropped thousands of feet. And you can imagine the turmoil that that would cause on a commercial flight. I mean, just picture yourself in a plane, in a split second, you've dropped thousands of feet. I think the air, the, uh, the air masks dropped out of their compartments. People were sobbing, screaming, terrified about what had just happened. Even though, in reality, everyone was perfectly safe. There was no actual danger. That happens frequently, apparently. I think that we can have much the same reaction when we come to Paul's household codes, as they're called, for how love and peace are to be exercised within the confines of the Christian home, especially between husband and wife. It's uncomfortable, perhaps even terrifying, depending on your story and what you have experienced. But I want to encourage us this morning to place these verses in their context. Rather than ripping a verse to wives and ripping a verse to husbands out of their context, let's place them in the beautiful vision of a compelling Christian community that Paul paints, of which the Christian household is a part When we recognize our position in Christ, 
when we recognize our union with Christ, when the peace of God is ruling in our hearts collectively and the word of Christ is dwelling within us richly, it becomes a joy to obey God's directives found in verses 18 to 21. So here's our big idea. If you are part of his new creation work, Jesus intends to recreate your family life. If you are part of his new creation work, Jesus intends to recreate your family life. At the heart of this passage is the matter of authority. We are all under authority to some degree, but we also resent it to some degree ever since the fall. Shailin is a Christian hip-hop artist that you may have heard of. He writes beautiful lyrics with incredible melodies behind it and beats behind it, where he describes the nature of God. He recently wrote a book, The New Reformation, which is a book describing how to find hope in the fight for ethnic unity. And he tells his story within the book, and he describes before coming to Christ what his own battle against authority looked like. He says, my sinful heart despised authority because I wanted to be autonomous. I wanted to do as I pleased. Due to our own desire for autonomy, we find ourselves immersed in a rat race of seeking authority while seeking to cast off authority, of abusing the authority that's been given to us while simultaneously despising the authorities placed over us. But the truth of the matter is this, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he lived in perfect obedience to the will of his Father under God's authority when we could not, since he died for our sin and our rebellion against God in our place, and since God raised him from the dead Anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection for them in their place, that one is placed under the generous, benevolent, kind, gracious lordship of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. So the question becomes, to paraphrase Doug Moo, Believer, do we believe and will we live out the fact that Christ governs the entire universe, including the mundane affairs of the household? So how does Jesus Christ intend his new creation work within you, within me, to recreate our family lives. We're going to look at our passage under three headings over the next two weeks. We're actually only going to hit one of those headings this week. We'll hit the next two the following week. But these are our headings. Gospel living for wives and husbands, gospel living for children and parents, and gospel living for workers and employers. So this morning we're going to hit just the first one, gospel living for wives and husbands. So, let's look at what Paul says to believing wives, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands 
as is fitting in the Lord. Now we ought to note that in Paul's day, right off the bat here, the fact that he would address wives as individual responsible agents was an anomaly that was uniquely and distinctly Christian in that cultural context. Notice further that Paul's instruction is rooted in the lordship of Jesus as is fitting in the Lord. Christianity, as one man says, has introduced into the family a new presence, even that of the divine Lord. The presence, that presence, has transfigured and glorified every human relationship. So all duties are performed as in his sight, and all life is lived in fellowship with him. So how does this form the believing wife who is being created, recreated in this new humanity, Jesus? And the answer feels in our current cultural moment like a dirty word. In fact, it may feel to you like after I've said it, I should go wash my mouth out with soap. It may feel like your plane has just dropped thousands of feet in a split second. But Paul says that the duty of a believing wife before her Lord in regards to her husband is submission. Now, let's notice some things about that submission. First, it is not an unqualified submission. Are there times it would be inappropriate for the wife to submit to her husband? Absolutely. There are at least three specific times, at least, when it would be inappropriate for a wife to submit to her husband because it would not be fitting in the Lord. Remember, the lordship of Jesus is primary here. So first, when the husband's desires and expectations make her out to be less than what she is, and what is she? She is an image bearer of God under the lordship, not ultimately of her husband, but of her Savior, Jesus Christ. So this would include situations of abuse. Submission in those cases is not fitting to the Lord, fitting in the Lord. A second time when submission, excuse me, would not be appropriate is when what is expected of her is contrary to her conscience. Paul will say in the book of Romans that whatever is not of faith is sin. Our conscience has been given to us as an internal guide by God. It can be misinformed and deformed, but it is never okay to go against one's conscience. So in that case, the wife should not submit to her husband. It is not fitting in the Lord. Third, when what the husband expects is contrary to God's revealed will. Submission in this case would not be fitting in the Lord. And this would include those times where a wife's submission would enable her husband's sin or excuse her husband's sin. And notice further, men, that nowhere in this passage and nowhere in the rest of Scripture will you see that a believing man is commanded to enforce the submission 
of his wife. That is nowhere in the pages of Scripture. So it is not an unqualified submission. It's also not an unthinking submission. This submission is a voluntary choice to place oneself under the protective authority of another. It is to recognize a relationship of order established by God. And no doubt that's a scary place to be. But to the believing wives in this room or those who are about to be wives in this room, you don't enter that place alone. You enter it with the Lord Jesus Christ, following in His footsteps, who voluntarily and joyfully submitted to the will of His Father for a period of time to secure our salvation. This is also not an unqualified submission. Paul does not say that every woman is to be submissive to every man, or even that every wife is to be submissive to every other husband. No, it is individual. Unfortunately, such readings and interpretations have plagued Christianity in the past. But if we read this verse this way, because you have two X chromosomes, you must be submissive to every human with an X and a Y chromosome, then you're reading it in error. Jesus' concern is that an individual wife be submissive voluntarily to her husband's leading. But notice that this is also not an unequal submission. Within this submission, there is not a hint of inferiority. If that were the case, then Jesus' submission to the Father would also indicate inferiority. And that's blasphemy. No, between a man and a woman, there is no place to say there is intellectual, moral, or spiritual inequality or inferiority. Paul has said that exact thing in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. And he says something similar to that back up in verse 11. Regardless of your status in life, which includes one's gender, for the believer, Christ is all and in all. But this submission we need to know in our particular day and age is not a culturally informed submission. I recently saw a yard sign right here in Hill City, and this is what it says. A woman's place is in the resistance. It's a pretty clever sign, you got to admit. And it may be very attractive in our culture. According to this mantra, the life of goodness, the life of beauty, the life of truth for a woman A life of true human flourishing for her can only be found as she resists the status quo around her. And by implication of the sign, any differing perspective is linked to the dark and evil powers on the other side of the resistance or rebellion in the Star Wars movies. From a propaganda perspective, this yard sign is really, really, really clever. But notice what this statement is arguing for is not liberation. 
It's actually arguing for bondage. Rather than submitting to the status quo, women, you are called coercively and manipulatively to submit to the culture, which will then set for you a new status quo and call you to attain it. For a woman in our context, a wife to embrace this mantra is to embrace the authority of the culture over her. This is still not freedom. It's service in a different way and in a different form to an impersonal force. Resistance against authority of any kind may sound appealing, but it's already been tried once by the only perfect woman that has ever walked the earth. Eve. And rather than leading her to freedom and liberation, it led her and Adam and all of their descendants to bondage, enslavement, sin, and rebellion. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is undoing the effects of the curse. He is reversing the curse. He is recreating all things. And this submission is centered, this biblical submission that Paul is arguing for is centered in the strength that comes from this Jesus. Since we are raised with him and are now setting our minds on things above where Christ is. And that means that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives you the enabling power to voluntarily submit to the leadership of your husband rather than rejecting his leadership. This is the path to your flourishing and true liberation. So sisters in this room, while you may wonder if the guy up here speaking is simply concerned that if this doesn't happen, the patriarchal society structures will be overthrown and I'll be unable to find my place in a brave new world. Listen to what your Savior says through Paul. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so we could summarize this verse in this way. Believing wives are under authority, like Jesus and with Jesus, and so are freed to embrace their husband's leadership. I almost fear to go here, but I think I must. There are some in this moment that the Holy Spirit in this room is calling to repentance because you have begun to drink the Kool-Aid of a culture that defies authority 
and embraces autonomy. But Jesus is inviting you to life, to embrace his authority and to defy autonomy to embrace his authority as the Lord Christ, to acknowledge that Christ governs the entire universe, including the mundane affairs of your household. If God's plan for the marriage relationship has seemed odious to you or restrictive or painful, and maybe that's due in part because of your story and things you have suffered, then God in this moment invites you to repent of your unbelief that his will is good. Because that's what it boils down to. Is God's will for the family good or is it evil? Is God's will for husbands and wives good or is it evil? If it's good, then we need to submit our understanding to it and even call the culture to do the same. So we repent of our unbelief that his will is good and we embrace the beauty of it. We lay down our arms of rebellion against him. We throw off the cultural shackles of autonomy in order to run back into the arms of the waiting Lord Jesus. And to my believing sisters who are not yet married but desire to be, do you hear implicit in Paul's words how important it is in marriage to join yourself to a man who has himself submitted to the lordship of Jesus? If you choose to marry a man who's not demonstrably a follower of Jesus, then you are putting yourself in a position to continually and repeatedly have to weigh if your submission to him is honoring to the Lord Jesus. You are voluntarily being united to a man who's not just unwilling to, but he is incapable of loving you in the ways that God calls Christian men to love their wives. But men, lest there is any self-righteousness that rises up within us as we hear God calls our sister, a God call our sisters in Christ to a standard that is very difficult and only capable as the Holy Spirit empowers and enables by His grace. We ourselves need to approach this next verse with equal sobriety and attentiveness. Verse 19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Can you sense the brokenness behind this command? Back in Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve that as a result of her and Adam's rebellion, her desire would be contrary to her husband's. And in fact, he tells her that the curse incurred because of her sin will be that her husband will rule over her in a domineering way. So he says, in effect, you're going to desire to hold authority in the relationship in a way that you were never meant to hold, and your husband will hold the authority that he was intended to hold in a way he was never intended to hold it. 
But men, rather than this being a point for us to look back and blame Eve, no, this is a point for us to look at our own lives and a call for us to mourn just how deeply the curse has entered our souls. When you find your voice lifting in anger or frustration because your needs aren't met or you feel disrespected, or when you find yourself berating your wife, or when you find yourself manipulating her emotions to finalize a decision in your favor, you are evidencing the depth of the curse present in your own heart. Men, what cause we have for mourning and repentance this morning? Second, notice the example behind the command. The command is simple. Love your wives. But the last time Paul used this form for love in this letter, it was an adjective describing the people of God in the eyes of God. Beloved. And the beloved's responsibilities towards one another. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So brothers, as much as it's in our power as those raised with Christ and participating in the new creation through the Spirit, as beloved as we are by God is how beloved our wives ought to feel by us. Men, do you feel the solemn weight and yet the joyful weight of these verses? If I can modify the words of one author, a husband is compelled by love to obey every good faith claim the wife may make for support, for sympathy, for protection, for happiness. As long as he is not seeking to be Jesus for her, and as long as she is not looking for him to be Jesus to her. But believing married men, hear this carefully. How you and I cherish, lead, love, protect, speak to, provide for, walk with, and embrace our wife will undoubtedly, without question, influence her perception of how Jesus, the husband of his church, cherishes, leads, loves, protects, provides for, walks with, and embraces her as one beloved by Jesus. As a child, I read through Dickens' A Christmas Carol every year at Christmas. Perhaps you remember the scene where Belle is breaking up with the younger Scrooge. She tells him, an idol has displaced me. And he responds, what idol, Belle? And she says, a golden one. Money and everything attached to it and the security that it represented took Belle's place in Scrooge's heart. And men, how easy it is for the same to happen with our own idols. 
whether athletic idols or recreational idols or power idols or security idols or performance idols, for these to take the place of, first, of our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and second, our valuing and honoring and cherishing of our wife, who above all other earthly relationships or realities ought to be and feel beloved. So brothers, have your hobbies or your work taken the beloved place that your bride ought to occupy? Does the love described in 1 Corinthians 13, a love that is genuinely sacrificial, especially when that sacrifice is inconvenient, does that kind of love well out of our heart towards our wives because we ourselves are beloved by Jesus? Third, notice the expectation of the command. Paul warns husbands against harshness or embitteredness. Charles Erdman says, Perfect love transforms and controls the exercise of authority. It makes tyranny and unkindness, selfishness and cruelty absolutely impossible. It removes from the submission expected of a wife all that is distasteful or difficult. Men, how often do we outwardly demonstrate what we, what we would call love in the moment when in reality it's a selfish and immature burst of acquiescence because we know we won't get our own way or if we do, the day may be ruined. Does your wife get the feeling that she is cramping your style every time she asks for a favor or requests something from you? Brothers, is this the sort of love that our Lord demonstrates towards us? Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Let that sink in for a moment. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Jesus rules his church for her salvation and her everlasting joy. Brothers, is this truth evident in how we exercise authority in our homes? Does it bring comfort to your wife even in difficult decisions? Or would your wife and your children describe your leadership as more of a curse than a comfort towards their everlasting good and eternal joy? Brothers, you may carry bitterness towards your wife, that's possible. 
but it may be because you've not yet displayed sacrificial love towards your wife. So you feel cheated that you have not received the love and respect that you believe you deserve. But brothers, our Lord does not excuse you. You are called to repent both for your lack of love towards your wife in the first place and to your harshness towards your wife, which has resulted from your lack of love. This is no health and wealth gospel, though. Jesus doesn't promise your wife will love and respect you as soon as you repent of your lack of love and bitterness. But he does promise to meet you at the place of repentance. And he promises to wipe your sin clean. And he promises to enable you by his spirit to love your life, your wife, in a way that is truly gospel-like and gospel-shaped, regardless of her response. You are not responsible for her response. You are responsible for verse 18. Love your wives. And to my believing young brothers who are not yet married but desire to be, I hope you hear in this sermon a call from your Savior to be captivated by the gospel of grace. To be so informed by it and formed by it that it undergirds your emotions, your thoughts, your actions, so that it brings you to repentance quickly and draws you to fellowship with the Lord Jesus. So that you yourself are seized by the power of a great affection, as one of the old-time preachers said. The affection of God the Father by or for you through the Son applied by the Spirit so that you can then pour out this sacrificial love in life-giving ways should God be pleased to draw your heart to the heart of a young woman in marriage. So if we were to summarize this verse, we might say this. Believing husbands are under authority, like Jesus and with Jesus, and so are freed to embrace sacrificial leadership. Brothers, the hope of the gospel this morning brings us to a place of joyful repentance and faith and humility. God is calling you to turn from the ways in which you're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. He's calling you to turn from the ways in which you've become infected by bitterness. He's calling you to lay these down at the foot of the cross and see the unselfish, unconditional love of the Lord Jesus Christ displayed for you. And he's calling you to turn back to him. And then to return to your wife in humility with a listening ear, with a lack of defensiveness, and let her speak into whatever she sees in your leadership. Ask that question, and then let her answer. Don't answer back unless it's to ask for a clarification. And don't respond to what she says in the moment. Don't justify yourself. Listen. Just listen. Take it in and then take it to the Lord Jesus. Commune with Him and ask Him to reveal those ways and more in which you can love your wife better 
So brothers of sojourn, can I call us together as a band of brothers to love our wives in such a way that they will count it an unqualified delight to obey their Lord in submitting to our leadership. If you are part of his new creation work, Jesus intends to recreate your family life. Charles Erdman was a professor at Princeton in the early 1900s. In his commentary on Colossians, he writes this, the Christian home constitutes one of the richest gifts of Christ to the world. What a statement. But if you consider what we've seen this morning as a whole, then I don't think he's off the mark. If Christian homes in sojourn were marked by this kind of relationship between husbands and wives, what a gift would that be to this neighborhood, Hill City, to this community, the North Shore, to the city of Chattanooga, to the state of Tennessee? So believing wives are under authority like Jesus with Jesus and so are freed to embrace their husband's leadership. Believing husbands are under authority like Jesus and with Jesus and so are freed to embrace sacrificial leadership. So may God give us grace to embrace this new creation work that Jesus intends to do in our home life. Will you pray with me? Father, for a moment we simply pause and reflect on what our Lord Jesus has done for us to secure our eternal friendship and sonship with you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it counterculturally cuts across space and time. And by your spirit is sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, I pray that the cuts that it made today would be touched by your spirit's grace that the Lord Jesus would meet each one of us in a place of repentance and humility as we joyfully embrace the fact that He is Lord. God, this is such a good and gracious truth. Forgive us for believing otherwise. Renew in us Restore in us affections that reach out and cling to this reality in joy and in thanksgiving. Father, I pray that our homes and our families and our lives would be marked more and more and more by the reality that we have been raised with the Lord Jesus and that he is reigning in our lives even today. In his name we pray, amen.